The pre-med path can be super confusing. If you'd love some help on your path or on your applications, use the promo code PMY for pre-med years, PMY over at medicalschoolhq.net and get some help from some of our experts, former directors of admissions, admissions officers, other experts. We have a small team ready to help you today. Again, that's promo code PMY to get a discount on our services at medicalschoolhq.net. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm gonna show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 39. Welcome to the Medical School HQ Podcast. This is the place to learn how to excel as a pre-med student, learn what it takes to survive medical school, and turn your dream of becoming a physician into reality. We're bringing you the most unbiased and accurate information available online today. My name is Ryan Gray, and I'm excited to host another great podcast for you today. And today I am back with... Allison Gray. How you doing, Allison? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I, I love the... We, we're, we're getting a lot of good five-star reviews in. We actually didn't get any new ones this week. We did get a, a new rating. We're up to 61 five-star ratings, but no new reviews. That's okay. But a, a lot of them, they mentioned Doctors Gray. I think that's, that's kind of cute. Yeah. So thank you guys for these awesome ratings and reviews. Yeah. So if you haven't left a review for us, it's very easy to do so. If you're on an iOS device, you're using the Podcasts app, maybe. Uh, you can leave a rating and a review right in that app. If you're not using the Podcasts app, you can go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes and that'll take you right to the page to leave a review and a rating. And we greatly appreciate that when we do. Through the power of ratings and reviews, we're more visible in iTunes. More students will be able to find us and use this uh, information as as you do. So hopefully you find us useful. Five-star rating would be great. So we got some news for you this week. If you haven't been to our website, if you just listened to our podcast, we actually relaunched the website this past week. And this is releasing August 21st, 2013. So earlier this week, we redesigned the website and launched it finally. And it's we, we moved it from more of a blog kind of layout where it's just post after post and we we tried to make it easier for you to navigate to the information that you need. And so you go to our homepage and you pick, I'm a pre-med student or I'm a med student. And from there, it takes you, it breaks it down further. If you click on pre-med, then you can click on MCAT, you can click on picking a med school, and, and it, it will show you that relevant information that you're looking for. So hopefully you guys find that useful If you have any feedback for us on the website, if you have any suggestions, any ideas, complaints, 
if you have any complaints, I don't want to hear it. But if you have any feedback, then <laughs> just kidding. Any Anything is welcome. Feedback at medicalschoolhq.net would be great. And what's the other good news that we have? Oh, the Academy. So the Academy, we've talked about it before, once or twice. We're slowly working behind the scenes, having it... De- we're, we're paying a developer to, to put it together for us. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks, it'll be available. It's going to be what I hope to be a, a game changer in pre-med and med student advising. We get a ton of emails from students and it, I love answering them, but it takes a lot of time and it's, it's one-to-one answers. I'm only helping one person at a time. So we're developing this community that will be unlike all the other communities out there. It'll be behind a membership wall, so you you, you are going to have to pay something, but it's going to be small. But the community is going to be non-anonymous. You're going to be using your real names, and you're going to start forming relationships with your peers, with other med students, with other pre-med students. You're going to have physicians in the forms answering questions. You're going to have test prep companies in the forms answering questions. You're going to have access to office hours where we'll, we'll have um, some frequency of webinars or, or uh, meetups, Google Hangouts or something to where everybody can call in, ask some, some questions live, get immediate feedback, immediate answers. And I, I think it for the majority of pre-med medical students out there looking for answers, this is, this is your solution we're also going to have training videos a bit available for you guys in all different domains, depending on what stage of the process you're at. And we're really excited about that part of it, too. Yeah, so the, the videos will be kind of on demand, and it, it'll be a video about MCAT prep or a video about the path to medicine, uh, just a lot of different things. And a, a lot of that feedback we're going to get from you guys. You're going to say, hey, I, I, I need this information, make something. And uh, we're, we're very excited. We're working hard on it, and, and uh, we're very excited to release that soon. So if you haven't yet, we actually have over 100 people already signed up on the list, ready to join. When we initially launch this, it's going to be just a small beta release. We're going to let in probably 20 or 30 people as an initial group of people, get their feedback, fix any kind of bugs, before we reopen it to the masses. So if you want to get on the list, if you're excited to join this and and be part of our community, go to jointheacademy.net and that'll bring you to the sign-up page where you can put your email down and uh, get notified when we release. So jointheacademy.net, we're excited to have you. So this week, we're going to kind of switch it up a bit and instead of talking about more of a educational topic, we're going to talk about news. Yeah, controversial topic. Yeah, and, and it's something that's huge in residency these days, and that's resident work hour restrictions. And I'm going to give you a brief breakdown of the history of where this all started and, and, and where it's going. So... So you may be thinking, why is this really relevant to me? Uh, I'm, a, I'm just a pre-med student, or I'm just a medical student. I, I won't be a resident for a long time. But it is relevant because what our job here and, and why I set out to do what I'm doing is to paint 
the clearest picture of what your life is going to be like through your training. And that includes how miserable you're going to be during residency. And, and trust me, you will be miserable. Allison can attest to that. It was a great ride, but yes, there is some misery there. <laughs> yes. And, and part of that misery is the amount of time that you work. But the amount of time that we work currently, or, or residents work currently, is much, much less than it used to be. And, and maybe you don't know, but residents are typically called the house staff. And that's because the hospital really was the resident's house. Back in the day, residents lived at the hospital. It was basically 24-7 you cared for patients. And there was a, there's was there been a switch uh, along the way, and we got to 36-hour work shifts as residents. And then there was a big thing that happened in 1984 a patient died, a patient by the name of Libby Zion in New York. And in 1986, two years later, the courts ruled that her death was the cause of resident fatigue from the 36-hour shifts, as well as a lack of oversight from the attending physicians. And a couple years after that, New York State was the first state to actually put a limit on resident work hours and ACGME the oversight body for all residencies in the US uh, put a work hour restriction in for everybody to where it's an 80 hour averaged work week for all residents and fellows actually and that has again changed recently to 16 hour max work days for interns with no overnight call, and a 24-hour plus a 24-hour patient care plus a four-hour transition of care period for uh, residents, PGY2s and up. So there's a lot of change. And then the reason we want to talk about it today is because there was a great article, and we'll link to it in the show notes, which you can always get medicalschoolhq.net slash session39. There was a great article today in the New Yorker about why doesn't medical care get better when doctors rest more. And there's been a lot of research coming out more and more that these the the work hour restrictions are not increasing patient care results. And so now the debate's back is what what happened? We we thought residents would be less tired, that their their ability to work better and make better decisions would go up. So that's why we're talking about it today. So as Ryan beautifully just illustrated, there's been a a massive shift in thinking about how important sleep deprivation is in physician care of patients and healthcare provider care of patients. And uh, a recent poll was cited in this article in the New Yorker talking about how uh, a recent poll of United States citizens showed that a high percent of patients would actually choose a more rested physician over one who was less rested. And uh, medical errors on that note are then thought to be due to a more tired physician. So I can say as a 
practicing neurologist now, I see lots of patients who are suffering real cognitive problems from sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation is a supremely underappreciated problem. And uh, many people know now that obstructive sleep apnea, which is a chronic sleep disorder, can cause or is, is associated with increased risk of stroke and heart attack, other severe medical problems, serious medical problems. But uh, in general, chronic sleep deprivation of just on its own without maybe an associated disorder diagnosis like sleep apnea is still underappreciated as, as a cause of cognitive impairment. So these bodies of uh, the, the Institute of Medicine and the ACGME, they're trying to get residents to be more rested so that they can provide better care more careful care, conscientious care, so that less mistakes are made. And one of the things that we can also think on that note is, is if you think about how, how sleep-deprived a resident might be after they're working 36 hours or back in the day even 72 hours, I mean, that can be as dangerous as drinking and driving. Your, your judgment can be severely impaired. and It's not can, it is. They, it is. They, they, they did a Mythbusters about it, so it has to be true. Yeah. <laughs> right. They actually sleep deprived the hosts uh, during one experiment and made them drive and watched how poorly they drived. And then they gave them alcohol and, and made them drunk and watched them drive. And it was, I, I think the sleep deprived actually did worse on the driving tests. Yeah, and it's, it's not surprising. And I even think back just after working a, a 32-hour shift uh, back in residency and, and driving home and literally falling asleep at the wheel and how dangerous that was and hearing about residents who'd had driving accidents and other problems. And that's after just 30-something hours. And I just think back hearing about the mentors who trained me and how they would literally work 72 two hours in a row. I had one attending physician who told me that uh, after a 72-hour shift, he came out to the parking lot to find his car, and he literally had no idea where it was. Now, I suffer from that problem after eight hours of sleep on a good night, but for most people, that's a serious problem. He literally paced around the parking lot for many, many hours. He had no idea where he had parked his car. Uh, so you can imagine that individual gets on the road, a disaster is brewing. So it's a real big problem. And what's been so interesting is how, as Ryan said, this is starting to swing back that really, you know, yes, sleep deprivation is a huge uh, risk factor in, in residents and other physicians making errors in, in patient care, but maybe that's not the whole story. So we also want to talk a little bit more then about, you know, what are the consequences of these changes? Why is the the balance sort of swinging back in the other direction now? So uh, what do the decreased number of hours that you're allowed to work as an intern mean? Well, first thing, it means more handoffs. So Ryan, tell us, what is a handoff? So a handoff is when the quarterback hands the ball to... <laughs> okay, a wrong sport. <laughs> oh, sorry. It's football season. I can't help it. Uh, so so a handoff, a patient handoff, is, is when a physician that is currently working in the hospital hands off the patient and patient care to the physician that's coming in to take over for that patient and replacing that physician so that physician can now go home and sleep. And I I don't know about what happened when you were in the hospital with patient handoffs, but 
it's a communication thing. And, and it, I think all of this will eventually boil down to increasing communication and how to better that. But what typically happens is as a resident, you walk around with your list of patients and you walk around with your to-do list for each of those patients. And you go through the day and you check them off. And at the end of the day, when it's, it's uh, no kidding, your time to go home or else you're going to get in trouble, you have items left on that list that are undone. And so the resident that's coming in to replace you, you sit down with him or her and you go, okay, patient, patient A I, is uh, so-and-so uh, female with XYZ problems, and here's what's left to do. And you go down the list of 10, 15, 20 patients, and you're giving a list of to-do items to that next physician. And that, that covering doctor doesn't know the story, doesn't know what just happened all day long, doesn't know the the course of the hospital stay, and all they're going off of are snippets of to-do items left over from your list. And they, they don't necessarily know why they have those to-do items. They don't know, they don't know a lot. And, and that's a communication thing, but and we can get into that later. But that's that's a handoff, is, is when you're giving whatever you have left to do for that patient and you're giving it to somebody else to do. Great. And so as Ryan just started alluding to, there's a real lack of context that goes along with these handoffs because, and and actually I was just thinking of this analogy, Ryan as a pilot always talks about how it's so important to have checklists and we are missing checklists in so much of medicine. We have them in the ORs, but we're missing them throughout medicine. We have them in flight. But if you think about it, and you know, checklists are extremely important in both medicine and flight. But the difference is if you're getting a checklist of of to-do items on a patient versus if you have a checklist of things that you need to do before you you fly a plane, you know that plane backwards and forwards. You've hopefully flown it a whole mess of times. You have plenty of hours on that plane. You've trained on it. You know it inside and outside. So when you apply that checklist, you have a context in the background that you're working off of. The problem, as Ryan pointed out, with these handoffs in, in patient transition of care is that you're going off of these what seem like sometimes a random list of of items with no context behind it. You don't know that patient. You've never seen them. You've never examined them. You've never interacted with their family before. And yet you're being given information, including things like if patient AS's blood pressure drops to 80 over 50, I mean, it's that's sort of a severe example, but you're it's these could be very severe things that can happen very serious and and uh, dangerous situations that can happen overnight and and you're applying them to people who you just don't have context about. Uh, and on the other side of the coin, if you think about the patient's family, so what does this all mean for the family and for the patient uh, and and how they perceive care? Well, all of these additional transitions of care as as the shift work, as, as care shifts toward this, these you know AM shifts, PM shifts, midday shifts, the patients and their families are meeting many more physicians. And so the physicians are, are knowing their patients less and the patients are knowing their physicians less. And that is a, a real serious concern. And I've, I've seen it firsthand in the hospital as a resident. 
physicians uh, going in and out of the rooms. It, the, the whole team goes in on rounds, but then overnight you have uh, maybe a night float resident or a night float intern who has never really met the family before. And the family's looking around saying, where, who is this? I don't know them. I, where is my regular doctor? Who is my doctor? <laughs> and it just gets really confusing. Yeah. And there's lots of, of patient and family dynamics that you learn as you are taking care of a patient that you're you're not that's not going to be part of the handoff you're you're not going to say okay in some extreme cases it is but you're not going to say okay patient x likes to be talked to in this way and avoid saying this cuz it really freaks her out and that kind of stuff is is necessary i i think for great patient care because it's it's those dynamics that truly allow the patient to feel like they're being taken care of and and I'm a big believer in the placebo effect and I'm a big believer in that the mind can heal and if a patient's at ease with what the physician is doing with what the hospital's doing then I, I think they get better faster. I know that's kind of voodoo thinking, but that's just the way I think. No, I think that's real. And I think that the doctor-patient relationship is a key foundation of medicine. And what's happening is that relationship is getting broken down because there is a discontinuity of care between many different people who are coming in at different times and 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 taking part of the story so yes, there is an attending physician who's superseding all of this. But again, remember that the interns and the residents spend the most time and, and are there on the front lines dealing with things uh, every minute all the time. So these these uh, lapses in, in continuity are, are really uh, a problem potentially. Yeah. And so let's, let's kind of piggyback onto that and, and discuss some of the other ripple effects that happen because of this. So we, we've talked about less hours working and more hours resting. And it's it's funny, I'll, I'll read quickly. Part of the ACGME um, guidelines for, for hospitals and, and what's required. So the maximum duty hour duty period length is a maximum of 24 hours of continuous duty in the hospital. And then it goes on to say, uh, programs must encourage residents to use alertness management strategies in the context of patient care responsibilities, period. Strategic napping, especially (laughs) after 16 hours of continuous duty and between the hours of 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. is strongly suggested. Whoever came up with that strategic napping phrase, <laughs> it's so, just ridiculous. So I, I remember going on my my interviews for residency and being in a room and the program director was talking to all of us there interviewing that day and she was talking about the duty hour restrictions and how it was going to affect the program. And she, she said, she's like, I don't know how I'm going to make a group of grown adults take naps <laughs> but it's it's one of those it's it's random and getting back on point the this ripple effect is now hospitals are struggling because they have the same number of hours a day but less 
people to work those hours. So it's actually costing hospitals a lot of money to actually fit into these work hour restrictions. Yeah, there's been a huge rise, um, at least in the hospitals I know, um, in the in the number and, and need for um, assisted healthcare professionals. So nurse practitioners, nurses, uh, PAs, um, to try to take over uh, uh, some of the duties uh, that, that residents can't do. And to piggyback on that, you're you're dealing with the same number of hours in a day, the same amount of work that needs to be done overall, and less staff to do it. And so what's happening is the interns and the residents are doing the same amount of work as before in less hours, leading to an increase possibly, and what studies are starting to show is is the decrease in work hours is actually increasing errors and and residents are actually self-reporting more errors due to the uh, decreased work hours or not not due to do not not due to the I, I don't want to jump to that conclusion but since the decrease in work hour um, the number of work hours there has been an increase in errors. Yeah. And if you're the ACGME or the Institute of Medicine, you're thinking, oh, shoot, because this is exactly what we're trying to improve is the number of errors. And I think that this just goes to the whole point of there's this misconception among people, patients, the larger public, even maybe physicians, that if you're more rested, you're automatically going to be making less mistakes. And if you think about that from a sleep deprivation standpoint, absolutely. But it's it's not true that it that just because you're more rested, you're not going to be making mistakes. And again, I think that the biggest issue there is just that lack of context, that lack of being fully aware of 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 what's been going on with your patient throughout their stay and really fully understanding who they are, what's been going on and and who their family is, all the different components that go together. i I really have to say, I, I witnessed this firsthand. We, we would have a night float, and, and a night float means literally someone who's working at night, intern who would come in and try to pick up the service. And there's so much that happens in uh, a period of a 24-hour period in a hospital when you have a busy inpatient service. And that intern is coming in, and you could just see the fear in his eyes. Um, he's a very competent physician, but you could just see, and I'm not picking out one person in particular, but just this just uh, struck me and just reminds me. Uh, he was afraid, you could tell, because he's picking up this enormous amount of responsibility and trying to hear from four or five people who are signing out to him about everything he's supposed to do. And he hasn't even been in the hospital for over 24 hours. He's been sleeping and, and now he's back after his rest. And it's an enormous amount of responsibility. So think about how easy it is to to make a mistake uh, just because you, you're not aware of everything that you need to be because all of that just can't get down in writing and be conveyed in a way that that's going to prevent mistakes. Yeah. And I have this brilliant idea for an electronic medical record system that will automatically flag the important things that happen during the day and convert that into a patient <laughs> handoff sheet. So basically a little robot to go around the team during rounds that will input all the information into the computer and give it to someone. That's a brilliant idea. Sure. <laughs> we had those little robots at the VA, but they kind of only picked up blood. So maybe you can invent one, right? Okay. If anybody out there is listening that is a very good computer programmer, and I do computer programming on the side and wants to go in on me with creating this wonderful idea, let me know. 
So, so what are some other consequences of the decreased work hours? So a big one that I uh, have seen and that a lot of people are talking about is the change in education of residents, interns, and even medical students because of the change in work hours. So what I mean by that is interns and residents traditionally used to take overnight call. As we had said, that would mean they would take 24-hour or 24-plus, 30-hour call, et cetera, and back in the day, more than that. So the, the, the physician who's now 60 or 70 years old, they would stay with a patient for several days. You can imagine they admit a patient with heart failure and they literally see how that admission and how the case plays out, how things go for the patient, depending on what interventions they do, depending on just how that disease process uh manifests, they they really follow out the course of the patient in the hospital, top to bottom, not necessarily start to finish, but a good real glimpse as to how this disease process works. And what's changed then, if you look Dis- at our disease process and treatments and treatments and interventions, exactly. So then if you look at our generation of physicians, Ryan and my generation, we were in, as I said, a 30 hour roughly uh, range of duty hours. And in that period of time, still, you admit someone with a diagnosis, you at least see uh, to a certain extent uh, how that will progress. And yes, you leave the next day and you come back, but you see a lot of it. You learn a lot. And the key thing there, too, I want to convey is the next morning on rounds, what happens? You talk about the case. You talk about how you met the patient, the history, the exam. You go through everything and your treatment plan. And, and the key thing is, what did you do? What worked? What did not work? How do you make it better? And let's learn more about the disease and the patient. And you would get that teaching from your your junior residents, your senior residents, your fellows, and your attendings. So what's happening now? What's happening now is that in a 16-hour shift that an intern works, so okay, they come in you know, at 6 o'clock, 6 p.m., they work until, okay, it's 16 hours. That means that it has to be by, what, 10 o'clock in the morning? So sometimes, depending on how rounds are arranged, uh, you may have morning report in the morning. You have uh, just shift uh, work, other things that you're trying to get done in the morning for the patients. Your rounds are completely disrupted. And so when you're, as an intern, you're trying to learn about what happened to your patient and what you did well, what you didn't, and to really cement that disease process and how it works in your mind, that is just completely disrupted. You're losing out on the attending, on the attending's expertise and their, their teaching. And what a shame that is, because that's the foundation of our medical training and something which, uh, which older physicians are, are really shocked and and saddened, I think, about and and really also concerned. I remember reading an article months back about uh, some older physicians now wondering, you know, this new generation of physicians, are we even being trained properly anymore? Because we're not seeing the evolution of illness. Yeah. What's what's the the ripple effect once the residents are out practicing? What's the error rate in attending physicians compared to before when they had the longer hours? Absolutely. And you just hit another key point, which is when you become an attending physician, what happens? There are no more duty hour regulations. So uh, shocker, shocker, that goes away. And so if you've been practicing as a resident and you're used to, okay, well, that's my shift. Somebody's coming in. They're taking over all my tasks. 
And then you become an attending physician and you have a, a practice where you, you're taking care of hundreds of patients and and then you're in the hospital and you're or you're a hospitalist, you're treating patients all the time. You don't have a body looking over you and, and making sure you're taking strategic naps and all these things. So it's it may be setting you up, maybe, I don't know. Is it setting us up to fail? Is it setting us up for a significant burnout later on? All good questions and, and stuff that needs to be researched. Yeah, and you know, I still think back and you talk about it all the time. Residency is an extremely stressful time in life. Some people and me included would say it's probably one of the most stressful times we've experienced yet. But does that mean that we should be only protecting residents or putting so much uh, so much effort and, and pressure on trying to restrict their hours so much when it's an artificial thing and it's not going to be representative of their life later? Yeah. Awesome. Anything else you want to talk about with that? I think we, we covered most uh, points on there. I think so. If If you, the listener, have any other thoughts on the duty hour restrictions. If you think we're totally off base and you have other, another thought, let us know. Leave uh, a comment in the show notes, medicalschoolhq.net slash session 39. And I want to talk real quick about some upcoming podcast episodes that we have. This one was a little bit different. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you did, let us know. If you didn't, let us know. Go, go to the show notes, leave an, uh, a comment there if you liked uh, this format a little bit different. I have a couple interviews coming up for you guys that I think you guys will like. And I, I want to tell you beforehand so you can go in and ask any kind of questions that you may have. I'm interviewing some higher-ups in Kaplan that are in charge of rewriting a lot of their material for the MCAT 2015. So if you have any questions, and I'm sure a lot of you out there do, about the new MCAT and the changes and how that affects you and the courses that you have to take and the studying that you have to do, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash feedback and submit a question for the, uh, the, the people at Kaplan for that podcast. So I have the Kaplan about the 2015 MCAT. I'm interviewing a current attending anesthesiologist about her path into medicine. And we'll talk to her about what she's doing now. And I was very interested in that because she had some struggles during her path. And and I, I think that'll be useful for a lot of other uh, med students and pre-med students. So an anesthesiologist and then I also have Tony Sozo coming back. Tony was on the podcast before talking about a lot of the financial aspects of medical school. He's the uh, financial advisor at New York Medical College where Allison and I went to medical school. Great guy. And he wanted to come back on and I wanted to have him back on to talk about some of the repayment options and issues for medical students. So we're going to run through some case studies, I think, about what it's like to pay back $200,000 in student loans for different scenarios. So if you have any comments, uh, if you have any questions for any of those people that we'll be interviewing, let us know, medicalschoolhq.net slash feedback. So before we sign off, I just had one other tidbit, one statistic, which we wanted to share with you guys. And there was a a recent study at Hopkins uh, back in April, I believe. And the study was about 
uh, on this topic again about duty hour regulations and how much time patients are spending with, or excuse me, physicians are spending with their patients, residents specifically. And as Ryan was talking about before, because the duty hours have been shrunken, uh, if that's a word, you're trying to accomplish more as an intern in a small, a shorter period of time, the same amount of work, a shorter period of time. So I just wanted to mention this to you guys because it's such a crazy statistic and it's just stuck with me and made me think. They talked about how medical interns on average, according to this study, are spending literally 12% of their time in a day examining and talking with patients. And guess how much time they're spending on the computer? 40%. How staggering is that? So if you're a pre-med out there and you're thinking about going to medical school, that is probably the last thing you want to hear after all of this hard this this hard work. You're you've mastered orgo and and you've taken the MCAT and and you're all set and you're going to med school and now oh my god, you're going to be spending 12% of your time with patients. How crazy is that? And the other thing you don't want to hear is that orgo's useless in medical school. <laughs> well, that's a whole separate topic. <laughs> But anyway, so I just want to leave it with you guys that my perspective, which I don't know the answer. You know, I think we brought this topic up because it's so controversial. It's such an important hot topic right now and will affect all of you in your path to becoming physicians. So I think it's a really important thing for, for you to think about, too. And 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 we don't have the answers. I don't I don't know what the solution is, but we're just trying to really give you uh, both sides of the coin and, and let you then try to figure out what you think about it. All right. Thanks for that last little tidbit. So hopefully that you, the listener, got some valuable information and, and we were able to shine some light on all the news about resident duty hours. So hopefully you learned something. Hopefully it's something that as you progress during uh, progress through your training, you'll have a little bit better perspective. And hopefully you you are part of the solution into fixing everything that's going on right now. So once again, thanks for joining us, guys, and see you next time here at the medical school headquarters. And don't forget to go to jointheacademy.net.